Naaman, a man who had everything. Status, respect, authority, success, courage, greatness, and leprosy. Second Kings 5, which I invite you to turn to now, begins and ends with a leper, but not the same one. We have a pair of lepers, and indeed, as we consider the passage, we see the narrative largely unfolds around three pairs of characters, a faithful girl and a faithless king, an unhappy commander and an uncompromising prophet, a converted pagan and a condemned Israelite. And these characters' very different responses to the situations they find themselves in are used to teach us much about the living God, who is from first to last in control of all that takes place. A God who is sovereign over all. A sovereignty underscored in verse 1 of the passage. What was the reason for Naaman being so highly regarded? Because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He is the God who directs Syrian politics and foreign affairs. The God who is sovereign in the big events of life, but also in the seemingly small circumstances of life. He is sovereign in the life of a young captive girl who, as she went about her household duties one day, testified how burdened she was for her master's condition and declared in faith, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. In God's sovereign providence, everything else that transpires hangs on this faithful testimony. This young girl's confidence that God's power operating through his prophet would bring healing. The faithful testimony of a faithful girl. Consider her situation. Snatched away from all she knew and loved. Dreams dashed. Condemned to a life of servitude. Yes, no doubt she could have drawn a shorter straw than service in Mrs. Naaman's household. But that she is in a tragic situation is surely incontestable. However, circumstances have not blunted her faith. And through God's sovereign power, she is used to bring another to himself, used to bring another to God. A faithful girl fighting the fight, running the race, keeping the faith in the most unfavorable of circumstances. The potential, as Karen has already spoken of, the potential of a young person of faith the potential of a young person of faith in New Testament terms, of someone who has come to believe in the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, someone who knows Jesus as Lord and wants other people to do that. The potential of that young person is something for us to think very carefully about this morning. As Karen was saying, in all probability... This young girl was brought up in a home where her faith was nurtured, where she heard the stories of the great God of Israel and come to believe in that God. As a church, we have to support that kind of nurture in the home, in park kids, 
and in and through organisations such as Scripture Union, whose whole ministry is bound up in making it possible for young people to engage with the Bible and respond to the significance of Jesus. And that faith being sparked is then to be nurtured, nurtured into discipleship, in order that these young people might be used by God, as this young girl was. The God who is able to take seemingly small things and use them mightily. Our God is the God who is sovereign in the big events of life and in the, so and in the small circumstances of life. From car parking to COP26, the God who is able to take and use small things, small people, people like us, young and not so young, use them here in Uddingston to accomplish things beyond our imagination. Our circumstances may not be very favourable in present-day secularist Scotland, but as already said, Neither were they for the young girl. In Naaman's household, she could have kept her head below the parapet, kept her faith to herself, kept quiet. Instead, out of compassion for her captors, she spoke out and was powerfully used by God. Will we be like the young girl? Will we be faithful, even in the difficult circumstances of life? We'll be used, used by God to bring others to him, as this young girl was. Who might that be among the people that we know? And what might flow from it? How might God's kingdom be built up? Will we be like the young girl? Or will we be like the king of Israel, a faithful girl, a faithless king. The young girl is full of expectation and confidence. The king is filled with dread and dismay. His response to Naaman's arrival with King of Aram's letter is to tear his robes and cry, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. Apparently the king knew God could bring about such healing, but only in theory. This man is king of Israel, the people of God, part of the covenant nation. He should be inquiring of God in such a situation, turning to prayer, seeking like the young girl to bring the living God into the situation. But no, Elisha has to take the initiative. The king doesn't seek out the prophet. God isn't his first thought. Is he yours when problems come? Is God the one that we instinctively turn to? Because we know him. Know the God that he is. Know what he is capable of. Even in the most unfavorable of circumstances. Or are we like the king? The king is part of, indeed, over the people of the covenant, but does not have the faith of the covenant. He stands as a warning. 
It is possible to be numbered among God's outward people without the inward reality of faith. It is possible to be part of the visible church, yet live life without God, without a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A faithful girl and a faithless king, an unhappy commander and an uncompromising prophet. The Syrian entourage and their chariots, the Rolls Royces of the day, laden with gold, silver and designer goods, draws up to Alicia's door. I don't know uh, what Alicia's house was like, but I suspect it would not have been a palatial mansion in the place to stay in Samaria. Here you have this splendid cortege drawn up outside the then equivalent of a four in the block. The tone of the meeting is being set from the get-go. Pride is being humbled, often a precursor to a real encounter with God. Alicia doesn't even deign to come out in person. It's a mere messenger who delivers the no-frills message. Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. And Naaman is not a happy bunny. He goes away in a rage, declaring, I thought he would surely come out to me. Naaman is a somebody and knows it. He feels as if he has been treated as a nobody and is not at all happy with this. He's looking for a bit of razzmatazz, a fanfare, a roll of drums. But it doesn't pan out that way. Naaman had certain expectations how things should be, how things should work. In reality, how God should work. And when things don't work out the way he expects, he gets angry. At heart, angry with God. That can happen. We have our own ideas of how God should operate, what he ought and ought not to do. And when things don't work out, according to our expectations, the prayer that went unanswered, the job that was not forthcoming, the disaster that was undeserved, we have a sense of grievance. This is not to minimise in any way the very real difficulties that life can throw at us, but to highlight the biblical truth that God's ways are not our ways. And if we seek to write God's script for him, then we are treating him more like an errand boy than the sev- that, rather than the sovereign God that he is. The one and only living God that Elisha comes in the name of. We turn from the unhappy commander to the uncompromising prophet. Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Go, the commander is commanded. Go and wash in the Jordan. Which in Naaman's, in in Naaman, (laughs) yes, as I said last week, not being able to visit the dentist and these teeth there certainly letting me down. Which in Naaman's estimation compares very unfavorably with the Urbana or the Farford rivers back home. Why did it have to be the Jordan? 
Why this way and no other? Not because Elisha is Elisha, but because God is God. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. That, of course, doesn't mean that Naaman will know that Elisha is a big man, but that God is a big God. Naaman is only a man, as the verse brings out. Elisha is too, but as the verse also brings out, he is a man of God. This is God's word to Naaman. No wriggle room, no room for negotiation, no either or. The message was uncompromising. Do it this way, do it God's way, or stay a leper. God's word was uncompromising. It still is full of grace and truth, full of life, but still uncompromising. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, says Jesus, the only way. And that way leads to the cross. For that is the only place where we can be washed, be cleansed, be forgiven, be restored to fullness of life, as Naaman was. We move on to the converted pagan. Naaman is made to think by his servant, who says, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? Was that part of the problem as far as Naaman was concerned? He wasn't being told to do something great, but something small and something he really didn't want to do. You could almost hear him saying, washing in the Jordan. I can't think of anything more ridiculous. What kind of message is this? This is sheer foolishness. Which is, of course, what 1 Corinthians 1 and 21 says. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Believe in the foolishness of the cross. Believe that putting your faith in a man crucified 2,000 years ago can mean you are cleansed from sin, restored to life, eternal life with God. Naaman obeys. He goes. He washes. He is cleansed made clean, restored, changed by God. God has done a work in his life. He is a converted man. Conversion, as the word suggests, is a fundamental change, a turning around, a change of moral and spiritual direction. Naaman is a changed man, changed in his attitude to others. In verses 11 and 12, he's ranting and raving. At Elisha, in verses 15 to 18, five times while speaking to Elisha, he calls himself your servant. Naaman is changed in his attitude to others. But even more importantly, changed in his attitude to God. 
Listen to his confession. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Naaman has come to know that the one true God exists in Israel and resolved to worship him and him alone. Please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. From now on, Naaman will be worshipping Israel's God on the Israelite earth he will bring back with him. Now some may say, but the worship of God is not tied to any particular ground. Others, that this produces a material tie to the community of faith that Elisha represents. What I would say is, don't let the focus on the soil blind you to the reality of Elisha's commitment. He is going to go back to worship the Lord God exclusively. Naaman is a changed man, changing his attitude towards God, changing his attitude towards others, changed by God which is, of course, what conversion is all about. God stepping into a life in transforming power. In New, ter in New Testament terms, God and Jesus Christ stepping into a life and becoming a living reality, a living Lord, bringing forth from us the confession that Jesus is Lord, Lord of all, Lord of our lives. The exclusive confession, the exclusive confession and commitment we see in Naaman. That is what we are to evidence as we say Jesus is Lord. But, you see, doesn't Naaman fudge things a bit? Doesn't his appeal for forgiveness in verse 18 regarding his bowing down in the temple of Rimen demonstrate his commitment is incomplete? Read what Naaman says. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimen to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I bow down there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimen, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Well, Elisha doesn't appear to be overly concerned, sending Naaman away in peace. And more importantly, Naaman receives the blessing of the Lord Jesus himself in Luke 4, verse 27. I would suggest that this is another indicator of God being at work in Naaman's life, sensitizing his conscience, causing him to feel the tension between his exclusive commitment to the living God and the expectations of his workplace. Attendance at the Temple of Rimen would have been part of the package as far as Naaman was concerned, something unavoidable. Naaman will not be worshipping Rimen when he goes through this formality. He will be worshipping the Lord somewhere else on Israelite soil. Does this not speak into the experience of Christians in the workplace today? The tensions experienced by the believer in negotiating the, difficulty, the difficulties between their faith and dealing with those things that come with the territory and their job description. These things that come to them as they seek to live out their Christian life in what can often be a non-Christian environment. A converted pagan and finally a condemned Israelite. 
Then Gehazi went out from Elisha's presence, and he was leprous as white as snow. What led to Gehazi's condemnation? Well, put out by Elisha being too easy on naming the Aramean, as verse 20 puts it, Gehazi breaks the third commandment, taking the Lord's name in vain. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him, is how verse 20 continues. Then his false testimony to Naaman in verse 20 breaks, sorry, verse 22, breaks the ninth commandment. And his covetousness, which has driven him from the start, breaks the tenth. So he's not doing too well. But his real offence is distorting the truth about the living God. Why was Elisha so adamant about refusing Naaman's gift? Surely because he wanted to impress on Naaman that the living God was not like the pagan gods that Naaman would have been so familiar with. The living God doesn't have his hand out to receive, but to give. He doesn't need to be bribed. He is a God of grace. Gehazi's greed implied that the living God was a taker. Gehazi was trying to put a price on the goodness of God. He applied that God's grace wasn't free. That's why Gehazi's condemnation is so severe. Gehazi is a member of the covenant community, a community who were told this about their becoming the people of God in Deuteronomy 7 and verse 8. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Gehazi distorts the truth about the living God, that he is a God of love, a God of grace, a God of goodness. God in Jesus Christ the God who in his very nature comes to save, comes to give himself, comes to die that his people might live. Two lepers, Naaman and Gehazi, a converted pagan and a condemned Israelite. One who receives God's grace, one who distorts God's grace, one who is a recipient of grace, one who is not. One converted, one condemned. In the end, from a biblical perspective, there are only these two categories of people. Those who know the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and those, even those who may be within the covenant community, that are strangers to grace. Those who, like Naaman, are obedient to God's word. Those like Gehazi, who are disobedient to God's word. May those with ears to hear, hear. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, may we remember your sovereign in the big events and small circumstances of life. May we remember our young people, Father, as we hear them. May we remember the potential of a young person of faith. And may we nurture their faith, Father. 
We remember, Father, that we are your covenant people. And remember your words to us concerning those who have not, those who are strangers, those who are aliens, those who are lost, those who are found. May we remember what your word says of yourself. And may we seek, Father, to put our faith in you, even in the most unfavorable of circumstances. May we believe, Father, that as you use this young girl, you can use us. Hear our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.